Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys, and the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a world-renowned speculator and libertarian philosopher who wrote the definitive book on profiting from periods of economic turmoil. His book, Crisis Investing, is a number one New York Times bestseller. His other books, Totally Incorrect and Right on the Money, continue his mission of challenging the statism and the advocating of liberty and free markets. He has been a guest on hundreds of radio and TV shows, including David Letterman and Charlie Rose. And he has been featured in publications such as Time, Forbes, People, and The Washington Post. Founder of KC Research, he is a regular keynote speaker at Freedom Fest, the world's largest gathering of libertarians and like-minded thinkers. He currently spends most of his time in Argentina and Uruguay. Please welcome to the show, Doug Casey. Doug, how are you doing? It's a pleasure, Michael. I'm talking to you from the backward little socialist country of Uruguay. <laughs> yeah, we've had quite a mission to get on this call here. Skype doesn't want to work, power outages, lots of fun things today. Yeah, I'm out on a, I've got a, a farm here and uh, I have a, a backup generator uh, that uh, I use when the power grid goes out, which it does occasionally. And we may be using that generator right now. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Things work pretty well on my farm. They don't work terribly well in the country. So why did you choose to live in this country? Like, Because you, you just called it a backwards little country. So what, may, what brought you there? What made you decide that you wanted to move there and buy a farm there? Uh, because it's next door to Argentina. Argentina is a much more interesting country uh, in every way possible. Uh, Uruguay is um, just across the Plate River uh, from Argentina. It has, it's um, got very little to recommend it. It's impossible to start a business here. Uh, the whole country lives on uh, the production of soybeans, cattle, a few other ag- agricultural things, and tourism. Uh, Punta del Este is a very hopping beach resort for three months of the year. Otherwise, the place is quiet and dead. Um, but uh, so I prefer Argentina from every possible point of view. Also, at the moment, Argentina is about half the cost of living as Uruguay. But um, uh, since I'm not um, a permanent resident of Argentina, you need a, a second country, uh, 
when you leave. You have to leave there. And it's good to have more than one crib uh, in the world, and, and I do. So this is a pleasant place to be. It's not any good for business, uh, but uh, I like to sit here in my library and work on projects, and that's what I do when I'm here. Excellent. So the permanent traveler, the the PT theory, which I'm not sure if you were the original person to coin or if someone else coined it before you, you're still living it today. You still follow these type of principles then? Well, less, uh, because I've, I've been to a 155 countries. I've lived in 10, uh, been to most of those countries uh, numerous times. Okay, that phrase PT was actually coined by Harry Schultz. Uh, Harry's about, oh, I don't know how old Harry is. He's a, he's a World War II era kind of guy. But he used to be a giant name in the investment advisory business. Are you familiar with Harry? I've heard the name for sure, but I haven't read any of his writing. Anyway, he coined that phrase. He's an American who uh, left the United States in the 60s. And uh, basically, he's been living in Europe for uh, most of his life. So he coined that phrase, but uh, I'm, I'm perhaps the uh, the main person that uses it these days. It can stand for perpetual traveler or prior taxpayer in the case of people who are not Americans, because as you know, uh, Americans are legally obligated to pay taxes, uh, even if they leave the country and never set foot back in it for the rest of their lives. And the U.S. government is... Um, in a position to enforce its will on them, unlike any other government in the world, it should have that kind of law. And I think the other, other countries that have that law uh, at the moment, where you have to pay taxes, even if you don't live in the country, are um, Ethiopia and the Philippines. Mm. And Eritrea, I believe, as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and there will be more in the future, because uh, there, there are rumblings from uh, other countries uh, about imposing worldwide taxation. And of course, with um, the, the banking rules and so forth, reporting requirements uh, that have come into effect, uh, there's almost no place you can hide uh, anymore. Uh, the whole world is going to something like China's social credit system, where uh, you're monitored and rated constantly. So uh, the whole world is turning into kind of a uh, kinder and gentler a police state, but a police state nonetheless. So any of the countries that you think are still quite free, that you'll be able to escape this type of behavior from the government, or do you think we're all fucked? Uh, I'd say basically we are. Um, it's uh, one of, it's going to be one of the bright sides of the, um, well, possible bright sides of the coming financial collapse. All these governments all around the world are deeply indebted. They've sold bonds uh, in the trillions, many trillions, and they're bankrupt. Uh, so perhaps their, the recognition of their bankruptcy will, uh, will cause them to um, retrench. They won't have the, the, um, the finances, the assets that it's going to take to monitor everybody. But on the other hand, maybe not. Because usually when you have a catastrophe, a revolution, anything of that type, uh, things get worse. They don't get better. And the examples I like to use to illustrate that are uh, the French Revolution in 1789. I would have cheered uh, the overthrow of Louis Seize, but then it got worse, much worse, with uh, Robespierre and the Directorate and, and then Napoleon. And the Russian Revolution. In 1917, I would have applauded the overthrow of uh, Nicholas II, but then it got much worse with Lenin and much worse again with Stalin. Stalin was a nightmare. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, Lenin was too. So generally, when there's a big upset in society, uh, it's an opportunity for uh, the sociopaths, uh, who tend to be the most ruthless people by definition, to take over and they make things worse. So I'm not too optimistic um, uh, about the future. I don't see that the um, the growth of the police state is is going to stop anywhere. I mean, you need 
government ID in order to travel, which didn't used to be the case. Uh, and it's uh, become much more sophisticated. Uh, you know, um, it wasn't so long ago, my friend Barry Reed, who uh, publishes Eden Underground Press, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. I, that one I don't know, but I'm writing his name down right now so I can go learn more. Yeah, so Barry, uh, Barry's had to serve a couple of stints in federal prison for various offenses. He's a solid, libertarian, ethical guy, good guy, but he, he's violated laws. Uh, and uh, he wrote a book called The Paper Trip back in the 1970s which was about how you could establish a second identification, a second identity, uh, get a second or a third or a fourth passport from uh, the U.S. or any other country. Uh, it was possible to do those things back then, quite simply, by taking the paper trip. But uh, now, uh, with the way computers work and eye scans and fingerprints, which many countries require uh, when you enter or leave them, uh, your options are much more limited. So this week I've been reading a couple of books by James Rickards, um, and he talks about us returning to the gold standard in one of his books. Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think that's something that would ever end up happening to us? Uh, I think it's, I, I think it's almost inevitable. And the reason for that is that... Um, all of these paper currencies issued by all of these governments are, are going to reach their intrinsic value sometime over the next generation. It's long overdue uh, because uh, in an idiotic effort to um, fight the um, economic recessions, it's going to be a, a, a nasty depression, much worse than a recession, uh, that these governments have created. What they do is they print up trillions and trillions of currency units. And um, that's going to destroy the value of the dollar and all other currencies, because frankly, most other currencies are backed by the dollar. It's the major asset of most, most central banks around the world. So if people are going to deal with each other, are they going to want to use the unsecured liability of a... Of a, a uh, irresponsible government? Uh, no, I think that the world is going to go back to gold. It's the ideal medium of exchange and store of value. And one thing that makes me more uh, confident of that is that uh, is the rise of cryptocurrencies, which have drawn the attention uh, of especially the younger generations uh, to the problems with the dollar. Uh, a lot of young people are calling the dollar a fiat currency. Which it is, of course. Uh, it's made out of nothing. Now, and, and of course, they're, they're using cryptocurrencies. Uh, I was a late adopter of them. Not too late, though, I've got to say. Uh, and I, I'm good at selling. So I got out in actually January of last year. That was a fantastic time to get out. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was. But I'm looking to uh, get back into some of these small, new, innovative currencies that might have specialty uses. Listen, I don't even use a cell phone uh, for a number of reasons. So I've got, I've got somebody that does that for me that is competent with doing those things. And I've got really good people to stay on top of this type of thing that advise me. Um, you, you just can't kiss all the girls. You can't stay on top of everything. You can't pretend to be an expert in everything. I agree with you there. So when just going back to the gold quickly, when I was doing my research on gold, it seems like countries like Russia and China are buying up as much physical gold as they can possibly get and pretty much depressing the prices of it artificially so that they can get it at a good rate. And it seems that it's almost like a, a hedge against the inflation of the United States, of the dollar. Well, I don't think they're, uh, you know, I, yes, I agree with that. Uh, that is what's happening in point of fact. Uh, but uh, Russia and China are not depressing the price of gold because you really can't do that when you're buying. Uh, you know, there's a group, uh, nice people, uh, called GATA, uh, and uh, they believe that uh, the U.S. government is suppressing the price of gold. 
uh, it, it's it's a silly argument uh, from many points of view, uh, not least of which that it would play right into the hands of the Russians and Chinese, who are the major buyers of gold in the world. But um, I think gold is the best place to be in the world's financial markets right now. Everything else is in a bubble. Bonds are in a hyper bubble. Uh, stocks are in a bubble. Real estate, which floats on a sea of debt at these artificially low interest rates that the governments have been able to engineer, is also a bubble. So that uh, the best place to be is, is commodities in general and gold in particular. But there's risk because with all the debt in the world, I don't think anybody knows how much there actually is, perhaps $200 trillion, not counting contingent liabilities and so forth, um, we could have a credit collapse. In other words, trillions of dollars of that debt could be wiped out overnight, which means that the remaining dollars would be worth more. So uh, it's a very unstable situation we're in right now. So talk to me, how did you get into speculating? Because I know that you have a big history with the mining companies and have a really deep understanding of this type of investments. The first thing I wanted to be when I was a kid was a paleontologist. Dinosaurs. That's true of a lot of kids. Fascinated by dinosaurs. But uh, I kept pursuing it and uh, still read books on, on, on paleontology today. Uh, but paleontology is a... Um, Division of geology. I got interested in that, uh, the way the Earth's surface works, rocks, and so forth. And um, at the same time, I was first introduced to sound money theory by, well, not Ayn Rand, actually, but uh, more than that, Harry Brown. I don't know. Are you? I'm just trying to get a grip on um, how things have changed in the world by asking you questions about who you might be familiar with. Well, I've definitely ran, read all of Ayn Rand's books uh, numerous times, but I don't know the second author that you mentioned. Harry Brown. Uh, Harry Brown Harry Brown was a genius, and he wrote a book in 1970 called How to Profit from the Coming Devaluation, which explained clearly, succinctly, accurately why the dollar was going to devalue. In 1970, and of course that happened in August of 1971. Uh, and back in those days when Harry wrote the book, gold was $35, and uh, well, I don't know what it was at that exact moment, but silver was about a buck and a quarter, something like that. And um, you know, it's, it's it's funny how it's a passing parade. Uh, you know, that uh, nobody knows who Harry is right right now. Uh, that, not that I care about who knows who I am or any, or leaving a legacy because everything gets folded into the mantle eventually. So this idea of leaving a legacy is nonsense. But, uh, this is the advantage of writing novels, uh, because they stick around. Whereas how-to books and explanation books, uh, nonfiction mostly, uh, basically just disappeared, d disappears. So anyway, that Harry Brown, he also wrote a book called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, which is superb. It's a work of genius. And uh, Harry ran for uh, president uh, on the Libertarian Party ticket in the U.S. twice. I thought that was a mistake on his part for a number of reasons, even though I was his largest single donor, just because he was a friend of mine. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't dream of giving money to a political party. Well, both those books sound really interesting. I'm going to have to pick them up. I did actually get a copy of the International Man first edition off of Amazon. It just got delivered like a week or so ago. So I haven't even had a chance to dive into it. And is that your first book that you put out? Yes, it is. And uh, I'm just wondering, what did you have to pay for on Amazon? I think it was about $50. Yeah, I've seen it advertised for up to $1,000. Uh, it was... Uh, I think you did, actually. Uh, that book, um, I don't think there's ever been anything like it. And I'm going to uh, totally rewrite it and improve it and expand on it greatly in the next year. Um, because that book came out in, uh, what was it, 1977, 1976? I forget. 
That was a long time ago. That was another era. And the world has changed greatly. Plus, I've learned a great deal in subsequent years. So uh, there will be a new International Man book coming out. But one of that book's distinguishing, um, well, it was the largest selling book in the history of Rhodesia. And that is one record that's never going to be bettered. <laughs> well, Rhodesia is no longer a country, right? That's right. That's why the record is never going to be better. <laughs> I, I was traveling there during the war in the late 70s. And um, in those days, what I would do is open up the yellow pages. Of course, no longer exists either uh, of a city and go through it looking for interesting businesses or whatever, just to see who was in town. And I'd call them up. And since I'd written that book um, in the U.S., and I thought it was the perfect book for Rhodesia because at that time there were 250,000 Europeans or people of European descent, more accurately, uh, living in Rhodesia and about uh, three or four million black people. And uh, I thought it was the perfect book because the Civil War was raging there then. Uh, it was very interesting uh, to be there when that, when that war was going on. Um, anyway, I, there were two publishers in Salisbury, which is now called Harare. I called them up, interviewed them, got along well with one of them, and he published it. And it flew off the shelves because all the white people wanted to make the chicken run, as they called it. And of course, now there are only about 5,000 white, white people left in Rhodesia, or Zimbabwe, if that many. So that's the story. So what are going to be some of the main changes you will make from the original book to the 2019 or 2020 edition of The International Man? Well, there are going to be a lot of changes, of course, because the whole world has changed totally uh, since the 1970s. Um, but philosophically, I imagine that a lot of the concepts will be still quite similar. Personal freedom, liberty, things like this. Oh, absolutely. And the fact is that I've actually become much more radical as time has gone on. I mean, uh, I became an anarchist in, um, what, what year would that have been? About 1973. I read a book, which I urge everyone to read. It's called The Market for Liberty by Morris and Linda Tannehill. And at that time, when I read that book, um, I was still a, uh, just a libertarian. Um, actually, just exiting my objectivist phase. Um, and we all owe a great intellectual debt to Hen Rand, but she didn't go far enough. So the market for liberty explains how a society would work without government. Um, after, after I read uh, the market for liberty, it was clear to me that I was an anarchist. And um, I've actually become more radical in that direction. Uh, since then, uh, uh, actually, I like to say I'm an anarcho-capitalist because, unfortunately, there are all these socialist idiots, actually, that don't even understand what an anarchist is. They call themselves anarchists, but you cannot simultaneously be a socialist and an anarchist. That's uh, They're mutually contradictory, mutually exclusive. So I, I turn myself in anarcho-capitalist. Uh, actually, I've actually gone beyond that. So, you know, it's it said that, you know, some people say, well, we only need to observe the Ten Commandments. Well, I'm not a Christian or a Jew, so that makes no sense to me, uh, nor the Ten Commandments, basically. Uh, instead, these governments have put together libraries of laws. Nobody can possibly even be aware of what they are. For many years, I was of the opinion that there are only two laws uh, that you need to observe. One, do all that you say that you're going to do. And two, don't aggress against other people or their property. But anybody can remember those laws. They're very simple, very clear. But then I thought about it and I said, you know what? Uh, just as physicists are trying to get... Um, the law, they're, they're trying to get the laws of electromagnetism and gravity and so forth all tied into one great law. You can do this for ethics too. And what I say is that actually you only need to know one thing. The whole of the law is do as thou wilt. But, and that but's really important, 
be prepared to accept the consequences. Because actually, most people will do whatever the hell they want to do, directly or indirectly, but they don't think out the consequences. And if it was emphasized to people that their actions have consequences, then perhaps people would act more responsibly. And that's the key to a polite and civil and just society, is individuals being aware of the fact that they should act responsibly. Uh, it's not a question of laws or policemen that keep society together. It's the quality of people. Uh, and of course, I, I have a very low regard for uh, humans in general. Uh, dislike them. I like, I like people in particular. Like individuals, but not as a group or? Well, not as a group. This planet needs to be flushed, quite frankly. So I definitely started out with the Ayn Rand about the objectivism. I think that's where I started going down this path. And that was, say, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And then I got into libertarian. And, you know, I've considered myself a libertarian for the last dozen years or so. And now I'm at, like, I had Bobby Casey on my show um, not long ago. And I've had Jeff Berwick on and a couple of other guys. And they have this anarchist. And so now I'm really starting to read and understand kind of like what the next step is. You know, it's not that we need very little government. Actually, we have the technology. We have ways in place that we actually don't need a government whatsoever. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or ebooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. Well, that's right. And it's, it's not just a technical matter of what we need. Uh, it's a moral matter of what's right. And the problem with government is that it's legalized coercion. The essence of government is force and coercion. And a civilized society works to minimize force and coercion. So if you don't believe in coercion, it doesn't make any sense to um, institutionalize it in the form of a government where it can grow like a cancer. Uh, now, the arguments made, which Rand makes, that, uh, well, okay, force and coercion are bad, and the government ought to protect you from those things. And the three things that it needs to do are uh, have a police force to protect you within its bailiwick, uh, a military to protect you from coercion outside, and a court system to allow you to adjudicate disputes without resorting to coercion. Okay, I could live in that kind of a society very easy. That would be fine. But it never ends there. And anyway, from a purely technical point of view, the free market, can provide all of those services much better and much cheaper, with much, much less risk than the state. So no, the state's not necessary. It's a stupid idea. And, and I'm just surprised that people automatically accept it, like it's part of the uh, cosmic firmament. Yeah, when you start reading and understanding history and the roles of government and what they've done, you know, people kind of believe that that's all of humanity, that we've had these types of systems in place. And it's not at all. Actually, these are like extraordinarily new concepts when you look at history in, as a whole. Yes, that's absolutely correct. 
but um, I'm optimistic for the future because at the same time as I think things are going to get much worse uh, over the next generation or so, um, I believe what Ray Kurzweil says about the singularity that many technologies, not just computers, are, are advancing at the rate of Moore's Law and that perhaps in 20 years, uh, the entire nature of life will change unrecognizably and incontrovertibly um, as not just artificial intelligence, but nanotechnology and uh, bioengineering. Robotics and all these other types of technologies. Exactly. And um, that indeed might obviate the state or make it possible for the individual to um, disregard the people that call themselves the state. That's the, that's the bright scenario. Uh, the, uh, the gloomy scenario is that the uh, Greater Depression, uh, which we're entering upon now, it's way overdue, several years overdue, actually. Uh, it, it started in 2007. And then when the governments printed up all these trillions of new currency units um, and lowered interest rates to zero and below, uh, that kind of threw oil on the water for years. But um, if they if they completely destroy the uh, currencies and the economy, uh, who knows what the consequences of that could be? Uh, it could be apocalyptic. I hope not. Well, remind me. The singularity, the the idea or the, the concept is basically that technology is going to get so strong that they're going to replace humans or that computers will get so smart that they'll have conscious thought and be able to act on their own. Isn't that what the singularity is? Yes, that's one essence of it. But there are other parts of it, too. Another part of it is that uh, we'll have unlocked the secret to life and... Um, you will, in your current body, or perhaps you might want to trade it in for a much better body, um, will be able to live as long as you want. That's another one, another possibility. So, sure, um, it, it's like the invention of gunpowder, uh, which I think is the best single example, or for that matter, the invention of the printing press. Um, Two of the best things that ever happened. Uh, initially, it was the ruling classes, the governments, that had control of all the gunpowder. But after a while, it filtered down to the common man. And gunpowder allowed the average guy to take a heavily armored knight down off of his horse, which wasn't really possible or easy beforehand. And the same thing happened with the printing press. It was almost a monopoly of the state and the church. But then the cat got out of the bag. So I think the same, hopefully, is going to be true with artificial intelligence and um, nanotechnology, which is going to be absolutely huge, and uh, biotech and so forth. So that's, um, that's cause for optimism. I'm a big fan of science fiction, though, so anything can happen. I am as well. I'm also a big fan of protecting myself. So on my show, I'm and my listeners will know I hammer them over the head day and night that they need to be educating themselves and you know, protecting themselves because a lot of jobs and a lot of uh, careers are going to be completely wiped out by technology that's coming in. Similar to you just mentioned with artificial intelligence, but also blockchain with the contracts, uh, smart contracts. You know, If you work in contractual law, like your job is going to be gone soon. If you work in any type of manufacturing, your job is going to be gone soon. Robotics is taking over. There's so many technologies that are going to replace people. And if people are not educating themselves on things that are really going to be useful in the coming, in the next generation, you could say, you know, they're putting their family at risk. That's how I see it. Well, that's right. Uh, but, uh, and of course, the answer of the statists and the collectivists is to come up with a universal basic income. Uh, I've actually met. Uh, in person, uh, people who are well-known that believe in this. And they impress me as incredibly stupid on a pure IQ basis, uh, as well as completely ignorant of economics. But that's the answer people are going to come up with to the fact that 
of most of these stupid chimpanzees uh, are not going to have jobs. Uh, they're going to be incapable of producing more than they're consuming. So the idea is to put the whole world on welfare. Um, well, so that sounds like the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it could be possibly the worst idea. Uh, but this is one reason why uh, I like to uh, be in a uh, peaceful and backward part of the world. I can sit here on my farm, uh, among other places. Uh, I've got cattle. I got chicken. I got dairy cows. I've got, you know, fields. So, um, as long as the orcs uh, don't uh, physically invade the place, uh, but in Argentina and Uruguay, uh, you can own guns. Incidentally, it's not as not as good that way as the U.S., but in today's context, it's not bad. So this is, I think we're going to have a real worldwide catastrophe. And it's going to be really interesting to watch. But I prefer to watch it on my widescreen uh, here in the middle of nowhere, as opposed to out my front window uh, in a populated area of the world. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> So, Doug, I want to segue. I want to talk about your novels a little bit because I bought both of your novels in the High Ground series on Audible. I listened to them like literally back to back. I put, I, I finished one, and one minute later, I started the next one. I was so addicted with these two books. Can you explain a little bit about the the, the story or the the books themselves? So, if my readers haven't had a chance to listen to them or read the the physical copy, um, we can kind of whet their appetite a bit. Well, yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Mikhail, and I'm flattered that, that you like them. Um, some years ago, I uh, worked out, uh, I thought there hasn't been anything like what Rand did that's been done for many years. So um, what, I've, what I did was I took a hero, his name is Charles Knight, starts at age 23, um, and through his life, he goes through six, uh, highly politically incorrect occupations. Speculators, the first one, uh, where he, um, uh, starting from a middle class background, not having any money, makes a little bit of money and then a lot of money in the mining stocks, uh, which are very volatile and, uh, goes to Africa to uh, investigate one that he has a big position in, gets involved in a bush war and so forth. So that's speculator, where I reform the unjustly besmirched reputation of speculators. And then, um, after seven years in the Orient, kind of a Christ-like analogy, a lot of people say that, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth spent seven years in the Orient, uh, although that's likely just a factoid, uh, false rumor, but who the hell knows. Um, he becomes a drug lord, where I reform the reputation of drug lords and show that you don't have to be a bad guy to be a drug lord. You can be a very good guy. Uh, then uh, he has to go to jail because of that. And in each case, the government steals hundreds of millions of dollars from him. Uh, he becomes an assassin in the third book, which we're working on now, which will be out by July, I think, uh, where we explore the history and the techniques of assassination revisionist history, showing that who's the good guy, the person that did the killing or the person that was killed. It's very interesting. But most importantly, the morality of, of political assassination and killing people in general. Uh, then he has to ramp it up to become a terrorist. Uh, I've got a lot of interesting theories about <laughs> terrorism. So that, that'll be book four? That'll be book four. Uh, and that'll be out next year. And uh, then, of course, once you're recognized as a terrorist, they figure out it's him. Uh, they'll hunt you like a dog. So what he does is he become, goes back to Africa and becomes a warlord. He goes back to the country where he, he made his first fortune, called Gondwana, and um, turns it from a shithole uh, into Singapore on steroids in 10 years, which I believe is quite possible, incidentally, and that's my hobby, trying to do that in dog shit places. Uh, 
So um, that's warlord. So you can be a good guy as a terrorist, a good guy as a warlord. And the last book, which I think will probably be the most controversial, it's not the last book, actually, it's the penultimate book, is called um, Antichrist. It turns out that Charles is the Antichrist. <laughs> because after after he becomes a, a warlord that does these wonderful things for uh, Gondwana, um, the natives, who are superstitious, think that he must be God. And um, what do you do if you're a god when you give people a religion? So Charles makes up a, a rational religion that will debunk Christianity and Islam and Judaism in particular. And, um, and therefore, he's termed the Antichrist. Um, and that leads to the seventh novel, which I haven't titled yet. But uh, here, I think Charles is going to have to destroy 80% of the human race. Or maybe just 20%. It's Pareto's Law. It depends on how you want to look at it, depending on the mood I'm in. And my co-author, uh, John Hunt, uh, who's an MD, who, uh, like many MDs today, no longer wants to practice medicine, uh, does a fantastic job with me um, on, on many, many things. So anyway, uh, John also runs our uh, website, which is called internationalman.com. Have you been on that yet? Oh, absolutely. Of course. So we do that, and um, I do interviews there with Joel Bowman on Fridays and on CaseyResearch.com. Every Friday, I do um, an interview with Justin Spittler. I don't know if you've read those as well or not. I've read a lot of your stuff over the last year. I'm not sure if I read those particular ones or listened to those particular interviews. I was watching a bunch of interviews. I, I do want to get back to the book in a second. I was watching a bunch of interviews from you in uh, Vancouver at uh, at a one-day summit there. That was really interesting when you were talking about migrants. I don't know if we'll get into that in today's interview, but that was fascinating. Oh, yeah, definitely. People should go to that. What What is the web bomb? reference for that, because I, I, I like the speech that I gave there, but there were several other speeches which were fantastic. I'll tell you what, I will put in expatmoneyshow.com in the show notes under yours. I will find the links for those interviews, and I will make sure that I embed them in your, or I'll uh, tag them in your episode, because those were fantastic. Oh, they were. In particular, I'd reference uh, the, uh, the speeches by Jonathan Roth, brilliant, about civil war coming to the U.S., uh, by uh, Frank Raymond, which is really a radical speech, and Giant Bandari. Uh, those are the ones on the top of my head, but uh, uh, every year, that thing that Giant puts on in Vancouver, it's, uh, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I think when you give a speech like that, like the, I would expect the people in the audience to like flip out. But you look around because they, they show the camera and everyone's just nodding their heads like like that is a really unique group of people because um, you say some very contrarian things in that speech. Yeah, they're kind of things that if um, I or the other speakers said them out in the streets in Vancouver, we might be lynched. You, you probably would, like no joke. <laughs> Vancouver is like Portland. It's ultra double politically correct. Oh. So going back to the novels, um, I've, yeah, like I said, I've read both of the ones that are available right now. And I love this. Well, I love both of them, but I love the second one because it's called Drug Lord, but we're not talking actually about pushing um, drugs that people would normally consider uh, immoral. When uh, And I'm not saying that I do, but, you know, I think that people should be able to do with whatever they want with their body. If they want to smoke crack, they smoke crack. I don't give a shit, but... Um, we're talking about drugs that are actually banned by the government because they haven't been overseen by the FDA and not enough palms have been greased. And, you know, they're charging $200 for a pill where you can get it in India for 70 cents or something like that. Yeah, so as opposed to writing a how-to book or this is my philosophy and putting it in bullet points and one, two, three, you've attached it to a character who you really care about and you really want to see, and you see the implications of what that does to his life and to his family's life and, you know, the people that are around him. I think it's just brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. And um, 
you know, I'm not sure I'm going to write any more nonfiction except redoing The International Man. But also, I'm toying with this, and I've been toying with it for years. It's writing a book called uh, Renaissance Man, which um, will explore the concept of how uh, in six different areas of life, uh, uh, intellectual, physical, aesthetic, moral, experiential, what's the other one? Uh, I'm not thinking clearly at the moment, uh, how you can, in effect, become a combination of Leonardo da Vinci, Richard Feynman, Richard Burton, I mean the 19th century explorer, uh, not the uh, 20th century actor, uh, and so forth, and exactly uh, how you pursue this. It's a book that I wish I'd had uh, when I was in high school, college, even in my 20s, maybe even in grade school for that matter. Uh, grade school would have been better. Uh, although it would have been a little bit over my head or anybody's head. But um, so I might do that as a, a nonfiction book, and it, but I might not. I don't know. I don't need the money, so why am I bothering? Well, it's important to spread the message and to educate and help have an alternative out there for you know young guys like me who we often don't have a place to go to to read about these type of concepts, you know, that we're so inundated with things from one side, it's it's hard to find an alternative sometime. Well, you're right. I wish that I'd had a mentor when I was in high school, which I did not. I went to a four-year boarding military school, uh, but I didn't, but idiotically, just because in those days, if you were from a certain socioeconomic background, you well, you automatically went to college as it was expected and it was considered a privilege. But I considered my college experience a complete misallocation of time and money. Um, and I discourage, especially today, anybody from going to college unless they want to definitely learn a particular STEM uh, thing science, technology, engineering, math. Otherwise, it's a corrupting experience. It's a stupid waste of money. Sure, you can, you'll get laid a lot, you'll drink a lot, but you can do that anywhere. In fact, you'll do I, I did that anyways when I was traveling, so. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you'll do it more. So there's no reason to go to college and live in a bubble uh, listening to politically correct teachers yap at you. Do you feel that way for all formal education or just specifically college? College in particular, because that's where the cesspool is most concentrated. Uh, high school, to a lesser extent, look, all you really need to know is basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. The rest is all self-education. Uh, you'll move much, much faster, but what you, it's very helpful to have uh, a mentor to guide you uh, because, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, mankind's destiny is in the stars. On the other hand, we're basically just chimpanzees. So unless you have, you know, some guidance and direction, uh, you might waste a lot of time and opportunity. So that's why I think about writing that book, whether I'll do it or not, uh, because it's good karma. I'd like to think it's very good karma. Because the book doesn't exist right now with all the self-help books. And I hate self-help as a genre, incidentally. But, uh, so we'll see what happens. Well, I hope you do read it because definitely I'll be picking up uh, a copy as soon as it comes out. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and make sure you pick up uh, Tannehill's The Market for Liberty uh, and um, also Harry Brown's How I Found Freedom in a Non-Free World. Yeah, and then you said uh, how to how to profit from the coming disaster was the other one you mentioned to me. Uh, that was Harry's first book called How to Profit from the Coming Devaluation. Yes, and that's the book that Harry Harry wrote called Why Government Doesn't Work, and it's also excellent, like all his stuff is. But it's funny how um, uh, it's a passing parade, and people forget who who these people are. Uh, you know, like, uh, who knows, maybe someday H.L. Mencken will be lost in the mists of time, too. 
You're saying all kinds of... You know what, Doug? I read a lot. Like, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone, at least my age, who reads as much as I do. I do 100, 120 books a year, and I'm 100% self-taught, and you've just given me, like, heaps of great books that I want to go and look up now. Yeah, thank you. Uh, how old are you? I'm 35, so... Yeah, some of the books that you're mentioning came out before I was born in my little bit of defense. But it's also interesting going back to our conversation about uh, education because I dropped out of high school when I was, well, I started failing out at 12, but at 15, I never stepped foot in the door again. I was completely done. At the time, you know, my family was so disappointed in me and they thought that I was like wasting my life and stuff. And it wasn't until I started traveling until, you know, a few years later, and, and certainly now, actually, I am so thankful that I left school so early, and I didn't have more of that brainwashing put on me for a larger portion of my life. Like, I, I, I genuinely feel bad for people who go on to college. I, and I understand, okay, you want to be a doctor or something like that. There's probably no other, like, you have to go that route. But to just go to college and university, spend so many years of your life, so many, so much money, become indebted to them, and you never even use the education. You've literally just wasted your life. We have so little time on planet Earth, and you're spending years and years of it. Like it just, I don't know, just messes me up every time I hear someone go through this. It's even worse than wasting the time. Most people indebt themselves, so they're they're burdened by a huge debt for many years that further restricts them. In addition, I don't know if you've ever uh, investigated a, a company called um, the Teaching Company or the Great Courses. You ever seen their stuff? I know the Great Courses, definitely, of course, yeah. Yeah, so whenever I'm in a car, uh, which is not much down here in South America, but quite a bit when I'm uh, in North America, uh, I always listen to those courses instead of the radio. And uh, they're excellent. Command performances by world-class professors. And you can listen to them again and again, none of which is true of uh, just going to a college and sitting in the class that you're assigned where you might be asleep. Or, you know, college makes no sense. I agree. So, Doug, you mentioned earlier that you've been to 150 countries. I've got to ask you about some of the countries you've been to and some of your travels, because I've traveled a lot, but but you've trumped me, and I don't think have I ever. I had I had Jim Rogers on my show before. He's trumped me. He's been to more places, but I think besides him, I don't think I've ever met anyone on on Earth who's traveled more than I have. So, like, what countries do you like? How did you get into traveling? Like, just just any story, anything. I just I I want to hear from you. Well, one of the only redeeming factors of having gone to college was that I took a junior year abroad while I was at Georgetown, and I spent a year in um, France and Switzerland. Of course, then I traveled all around Europe. Uh, back in the days when there was a book, uh, it was very, very popular, called Europe on $5 a Day, if you can believe that. And it was a realistic book. It showed you how you could get food and lodging and for $5 a day. Of course, the dollar was worth more then, but still, it's pretty shocking. Um, so that was uh, that was uh, my first travel experience. And then um, I just started taking trips uh, that were available here and there. Then when I got into the mining business, um, mining is very internationally oriented. And uh, I went many, many places to visit mines. And um, so one thing leads to another. When you worked in the mining, did you actually work for a company or were you always writing newsletters and writing articles and things about it? Or was it just for the, your own side? I, how did that work? That's exactly the case. I never actually worked for a mining company. <sighs> Starting early on, after I made my first big hit with South African gold stocks, which were the main way that you played uh, a leveraged bet on gold in those days. Um, I started I started playing, uh, speculating in uh, 
mostly Canadian mining stocks, because about 85% of the money that goes into mining in the world is raised in Canada. So that's the epicenter, secondarily Australia, um, then London and the U.S., uh, distant third and fourth. But um, so that's that was the reason. And uh, the nice thing about mining, or, or not nice thing from some people's point of view, is it always gets you out into the boondocks, uh, which is interesting um, because these countries are not just their capital cities, although indeed the world is becoming much more urbanized all the time. And I've gotten lucky. Um, in Mining is a, actually, uh, as a business, uh, is a horrible business. I don't recommend it to anybody. I mean, it's a 19th century choo-choo train business with, you know, people playing with big yellow trucks in the dirt. It doesn't interest most people today. Uh, but um, uh, they're extremely volatile stocks. And um, it's possible to get 10 to 1 in a short period of time. Get a hundred to one or more in a short period of time with these stocks. It's also uh, quite possible, even likely, that you'll lose 95% of your money. So it's that kind of a game. Well, I remember listening to, I don't know what it was, uh, an interview with you and Bill Bonner, and you were saying, yeah, some like you've done 10 bangers, you've done 100 bangers. But did I hear you right when you said you did a thousand to one at one point? That is correct. Uh, that actually happened with a stock called Diamond Fields, which I bought for the wrong reasons. Well, first I bought it as a shell put together by friends of mine at 25 cents a share with a full warrant. And uh, when I bought more, when I thought what we were doing was uh, looking for diamonds off the coast of Namibia in the ocean, uh, that blew up. The company should have gone to zero. But at the last minute, they also had a property in Labrador. Some geologists were looking out the helicopter window. They saw interesting colors on this one hill. They said, ah, we're on our way back home. But let's, let's drive the thing over to the hill and take some samples. And they found one of the biggest nickel discoveries in the history of the world, the Boise's Bay deposit in Labrador. So that stock went from a quarter to $250 a share. That was a thousand. One actually it was more than that since since I have warrants and the warrants let you buy another share at the same price a quarter uh, or another private placement at four dollars. Now you never keep all that stuff until the top. You're selling on the way up, okay? And you never sell and you never sell at the top either. But you know sometimes you just have a few shares left and pure dumb luck luck you top tick top ticket. So uh, that can happen. That's that's lightning striking. That is definitely lightning striking. That's incredible. Because when I when I listened to the interview, I I, I was like, I gotta ask Doug about this. I gotta ask Doug because I, I must have misheard what I just heard. Like uh, that just can't be right. That's mad. Well, and there was another example too. There was a some crappy little stock. I don't remember what it was, and I didn't have much. I had I don't know. Jeez, I didn't have had hardly any of it. It went to twenty dollars a share, and I would have bought it for pennies. So I didn't even realize I forgot that I owned it, except when I was on some interview with a hostile interviewer. This was back in the eighties. I said, "What?" Because yeah, uh, I mentioned that stock, or I don't know. So it's not mining stocks are not something. That the average person should get involved in. There's too much technical knowledge. Uh, there's too much inside dealing. There's just too much risk that's unquantifiable. The intelligent thing for somebody that's in his 20s or 30s to do is to invest like Warren Buffett does. That's really the smart thing to do. Um, I mean, yeah, you can do what I did, and I got lucky a number of times. But uh, it's better to use the Graham Dodd method and, and do what Buffett does. This. Although right now, I don't think it's a particularly good time since the market's in a bubble. As I said earlier, all the markets are in a bubble. Buffett's sitting in cash right now mostly. He can't even find anything to buy. Yes, you're quite correct. That's, that's, that's right. 
And of course, sitting in cash, you're losing 5% per year to inflation. Maybe it'll be much more in the near future. But perhaps it's better to have a certain 5% loss than the possibility of a 90% loss. Or can circle back to what we started the conversation with and putting it into physical bullion and, you know, putting it under your bed or something like that. Yes, actually, that makes a lot of sense today. Both of the precious metals, and of course, there's, there's 92 naturally occurring elements on the periodic table. And from time to time, uh, one of them or another gets hot. So there's more of the mining business than just gold and silver. So to talk about travel, because I, that was my question, then I interrupted you about the mining because it just, I, I had to. Um, so you actually traveled. That's how you ended up traveling to so many countries because you were visiting these mines in different countries? No, I wrote The International Man back in 1976 or 7, something like that. And um, I'd already been to 40 countries back then. The uh, mining business turbocharged things. And of course, in those days, people didn't travel quite the way they do today. That was before the era of cheap jet travel. And that was back in the days when, incidentally, you know, there was, there was, um, there still is an organization called the World Service Authority that was, uh, founded by a guy who's dead now, died a couple of years ago, named Gary Davis, another World War II type. He was a bomber pilot in World War II. Long story, interesting story. But, uh, they issued their own passports and I got one of them and, uh, I used it successfully in a half a dozen countries. Yeah, oh yeah. It was a privately issued passport. It was stamped, official, and all that time. And it was turned away in another half dozen countries. And that was even more interesting. Uh, when, when that happened, going to back rooms uh, in, in weird places with people. But, uh, of course, it's no good anymore for travel because all these passports are synced together in computer systems. So, but it's, it's useful sometimes. It's good to have a piece of alternative identification to, give to a hotel when they want to take your passport or something. Doug, your next book, it's got to be a biography, an autobiography about your life. Because I feel like we could just go on all day. There's so many interesting things I want to ask you about, so many cool stories and travels and experiences you've had. You've been, one of your books, you got to promise me you're going to be putting out a biography or an autobiography. Yeah, maybe that Renaissance Man book will come as close as there is to it. But otherwise, it would... I feel presumptuous actually writing, thinking about writing a book called Renaissance Man, or for that matter, doing an autobiography. You know, it's the type of thing that um, a lot of self-promoters do. And like I said, uh, my view is that, uh, you know, I don't need to do it and it makes me self-conscious of my various flaws and failings. And uh, I don't like to be intellectually dishonest and just emphasize the bright bright side. Yeah, but they they make the best books, the one where you know the hero has a bit of flaws that they don't always do the right thing, and then the lessons that can be learned from that. Those are all important things, Doug. Well, uh, perhaps these high ground novels with uh, Charles Knight uh, are. They say that your first novel or your first series of novels, in this case, are uh, always semi-autobiographical. And uh, that's more or less the case here. Amazing. I love it. Doug, thank you so much for your time. Such a cool conversation. So interesting to learn from you. If my listeners learn, want to learn more about what you do, if they want to pick up your books, where can we send them? Well, they're available on Amazon, or they can go to highgroundbooks.com. And... Um, they should um, get a uh, get the free blog, which is available, internationalman.com. Every Friday, I do uh, uh, an interview, which is usually quite interesting, I think, uh, on caseyresearch.com. So those are the ways to uh, follow what's going on in my little world. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I put all the links to that under the show notes for your episode, Doug, at expatmoneyshow.com. Fantastic. Thanks, Mikkel. Thanks so much for being a guest. We'll talk to you soon, okay, Doug? Okay. 
Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.